Hey, good morning. morning. How's everybody doing? That's terrific. So we're midway through a series that we're calling The Power of a Dream, and it's an Old Testament story. It's a story of Joseph that begins with a dream in uh, uh, chapter uh, 37, and it ends with a dream fulfilled all the way in chapter 50. So I've been challenging people at Mount Laurel campus, and I challenge you as well. If you haven't been reading that story, man, that's a great, if you don't have a devotional thing that you're reading right now, this would be a great story to read. Uh, those chapters are filled with some great stuff. And, and as we mentioned this uh, each week, this is a dysfunctional family that's gone terribly wrong, right? Uh, there's Jacob, who is the dad in the story, and he plays favorites, not just a occasionally, but we see that favoritism is part of his character. It's who he is. Uh, Joseph, the main character in the story, is either arrogant or ignorant uh, in chapter 37. More likely arrogance. It's more likely he's arrogant, having been the favorite son for 17 years. That will do that to you. And then there are 10 brothers in the story so far. 10 brothers who are living in envy and jealousy. Uh, They are envious and jealous of their younger brothers brother, and this envy becomes so great that they choose to uh, create a plot to kill their brother. At the end of last week's message, instead of being killed by his brothers, Joseph is sold into slavery. And so we have a lot of ground to cover uh, this morning, and so I want to move right into it. This is a centuries-old story, and this story still applies today. There's so much drama and so much dysfunction and so much intrigue in this story that it could easily be a lifetime movie. I mean, it's that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, a story. When I go visit my mom, uh, my mom lives alone in an apartment, and when, uh, when I go visit her, uh, it's without fail that there's a Lifetime channel on. It's either the Lifetime channel or the Hallmark channel. or all, and, and every time I, I, re, I, I sit there and she has it on the background and, and we get drawn into it, and it's like, we go home and we're like, our whole family, we're driving home and all we end up talking about is the movie that Nana was watching, right? But it, it could fit. It could be an Old Testament story. Oh, sorry. Uh, so it fit really well. Uh, so some background. Uh, before we begin, we're going to read in chapter 39. Joseph was sold by his brothers to a bunch of traders and uh, like people who sell people, not traders, like they anyway, traders. And then after a 200-mile journey to Egypt, he is sold again, this time to Potiphar. Now, Potiphar, we're going to see, is an Egyptian officer. Specifically, he's the captain of the guard for Pharaoh. And uh, Joseph becomes a slave in Potiphar's house. And so we're going to read the verses. They're up on the screen. And we're going to notice that Uh, Joseph, in a short time, it seems, and maybe a longer time, but it seems like a short time, that Joseph receives three promotions while in Potiphar's employ. And so again, up on the screen, we're beginning with verse 2, it says this, uh, the Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home. There's his first job. He's responsible for serving in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar Notice this and realize that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. So there's a promotion comes along for Joseph. He now becomes the personal attendant to Potiphar. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. 
And from the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and livestock flourished. Verse 6, so Potiphar gave Joseph his third promotion in this paragraph, complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. Not just the household now, but everything that Potiphar owned. With Joseph there, the writer tells us, Potiphar didn't worry about a thing. He was almost retired, except what kind of food he ate. The only decision Potiphar had to make when Joseph was there is what should we have for dinner? So Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph. That's a really important phrase in this paragraph. Some background on Potiphar. He's Egyptian. He's a highly trusted member of Pharaoh's inner circle. Potiphar is either the head of Pharaoh's security, he's the head of the secret service, or he's the chief of police for all of Egypt. We're not really sure, but that's likely what his title or his responsibilities are in Egypt. His name, Potiphar, means that he is devoted to the sun, S-U-N, the sun. So we can surmise that he's a religious man, and if he's a religious man living in Egypt, he worships Egyptian gods, which there were many. And Pharaoh, who he is responsible to, in ancient times, the pharaohs were considered to be gods themselves. And so here's Potiphar, a religious man in Egypt who worships many gods, who also likely worships Pharaoh, who is considered a god as well, and the writer of Genesis tells us that Potiphar noticed how Joseph was living and realized that the Lord was with Joseph. This is a big deal. The writer is making sure that we recognize and wants us to recognize this is a big deal. That Potiphar, a member of Egyptian culture, notices that Joseph lives differently that Joseph's life was unique, that he worked hard, that he worked well, that he was successful living in this foreign culture, and Joseph was moving up in the ranks within Potiphar's house because of the way he lived, and Potiphar attributed Joseph's lifestyle and way of living to Joseph's faith. Faith in a God that Potiphar didn't believe in. Faith in a God that Potiphar himself did not worship personally. And so one of the first things I think our writer of Genesis wants us to note is that how we live matters. That people who are far from God will notice how we are living. How we handle mishaps and harm and evil. That people will notice how we live when the test comes back positive. That they'll notice how we live when work is not going as well as we had hoped it would. That people will notice how we respond at the water cooler when there's gossip. Does gossip still take place at the water cooler? 
we don't have a water cooler here. And so I don't, I don't, I, we have other places to gossip, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it's not at the water cooler. Maybe it's the coffee maker. Uh, but people notice how we respond to gossip. People will notice how we live when the road ahead is filled with setbacks and troubles and concerns. If we choose to live out our faith and make our faith visible, people will notice. And so Potiphar, because of what he saw in Joseph's life, chose to put trust in Joseph. And so people are watching. People are watching our values. They're watching our character. And they're watching our integrity. And I want to talk about values and character and integrity for a few minutes. And before I go too far into that, though, I want us to define, because those three things can seem similar, but yet there's a difference and they work together. So values, as I'm understanding values, is these are the things that we consider important. Now, values can be good values or bad values. They can be healthy values or they can be unhealthy values. And we all have values. We all here in this room have things that we choose to make important. So our values could be that someone could say, I, we value family vacations. And so we put aside a certain amount of funds. It's important that we spend time on family vacations. That becomes a family value. It could be healthy eating could be a value for you. Or it could be financial success could be a value. For some, it could be retirement early. That's a value that we have. Other values could also be things like honesty or trustworthiness, or, or just a value to, a family is a value to us. So we all have values. We all have things that we would consider important. Sometimes we unintentionally teach bad values or, un, or unhealthy values as well, because we don't realize that the things that we value are impacting our life. And so there are times that uh, you can meet people who you find that they have values that necessarily aren't great values. I was, I was officiating at a funeral. This was years and years and years ago now, but uh, I was at the funeral and uh, I, was, I was there too. And it was a, a family I did not know. I'd never met them. On occasion, uh, the, a funeral director will call and ask if there's a pastor who can do a funeral for someone whose family doesn't have a connection to, uh, to a church. And so I was at this funeral officiating there, and the family uh, was there, and I said, tell me, tell me something about, about this family member that is lost, your dad who's, who's been lost. Tell me about him. And they said he loved to golf. I'm like, all right, I can't work with that. Uh, but I didn't say it that way, but said, tell me some more. And they go, well, well, he had golf memberships, and they started listing his golf memberships. I said, that's great. That's terrific. Okay, what else? He had a lot of friends who golfed as well. And I came to realize this man valued what? Golf. That was his value. That was what was important to him, and his family knew that, that golf was important to him. So our values can be, uh, uh, unintentionally, we can teach bad values, we teach unhealthy values, so, so we have values. And the next one is character. We have character, who we are. This is a person's learned and unlearned attributes. Now, the word character comes from the root word to engrave. And so our character are those things that have been engraved on our heart and life. 
So our values are what is important, and our character is who we are, okay? Now, character can also be good or bad, or it can be healthy or unhealthy, all right? Then third is integrity. Now, our integrity is the consistency that we have between our words and our deeds. That comes from the Latin word, which means wholeness or rightness, or this word, intact. Integrity is the same as intact. So when a building has been built well, we say that it has structural integrity, right? That means that when there are pressures around it, an earthquake, a tsunami, this building is structurally sound, it has structural integrity, it will stand up to the pressures around it. So when your actions are consistent with your values, you have integrity. So value is what's important, character is who we are, and integrity is do your values and your character match, okay? So values, character, and integrity. This is all gonna make sense in a moment as we get further on in the story. So our value could be honesty, and our character is that we are truthful always, and if we are, then our integrity remains intact. Our value can be honesty, and we could tell little white lies, or worse, lies to get us out of trouble. And in that case, our character is, our, our integrity is questionable, right? Now, some other things about these things is that uh, we teach values, okay? Values are always taught. These, uh, they, they, like I said, they can be unintentional or they can be intentional. So when our kids were younger, we said to them, honesty is the best policy. We were teaching this value that honesty is the best policy. I hope that that's what we're teaching, right? Uh, so we teach values. We grow character. So we teach values, but we grow character. We can't teach character. We teach values, we grow character. So as our children grew, they would practice honesty because we told them honesty was the best policy. And as they grew and as they practiced honesty, it became engraved on their heart. All right, so we teach values, we grow character, and we build integrity. So the circumstances in life that test and prove our values and character are what build our integrity. So when a dif difficult circumstance comes up and a way of escape is possible by dishonesty, there's pressure that is building because we're taught that honesty is the best policy and our, it's engraved on our hearts and in our lives that we should be honest. And our faith, or excuse me, our values are in character is tested in those moments. Will we be honest or will we be dishonest? And that builds integrity, okay? So we teach values, we grow character, and we build integrity. Now, the best example of this, man, you can't beat this. I wish I could have this person here and have them just talk to you for 15 minutes because it does the whole deal, all right? It was a young lady by the name of Kate Winja. Did you hear about Kate this week? I think it just happened earlier this week. And the last weekend actually is when this event happened. She was a senior on the golf team at Sioux Falls Christian in South Dakota. She's in high school. She and her high school golf team won the state golf meet by several strokes. They won by several strokes won the championship. She won the overall trophy and her team won the championship. But then as the final scores were being posted, Kate realized that she had made a mistake. 
She had put herself down for a four on the 18th hole of the last round when she had actually gotten a five. It was a mistake on her card. And she had signed her card as she went in. And she realized as the scores were being posted, I did not get a four, I had gotten a five. Now she had won by several strokes. That one stroke didn't matter, she still had won. But in golf, if you sign an incorrect scorecard, by the rule, you are disqualified. And so she went up to the officials and said, my card is wrong. On that last hole, I scored a five, not a four. And I'd signed the card mistakenly. And she was disqualified. And she lost the trophy, and her team lost the championship. It cost her and her team. And then she said this, because this blew up on the news, especially in South Dakota. She said, I knew I needed to tell them. It was really sad, mostly because I knew what the result would be. I knew that I would be disqualified, and it broke my heart for the team. She's 17 years old. She said this, but I knew I couldn't leave without saying something. I started following Kate on Twitter because I think she's the kind of person that could change the world. And I want to say I follow her now. (laughs) She said this the same day. This was her tweet. She said, obviously today didn't go as planned. But God has a plan and uses tough situations for his glory. She says, I am blessed with the ability to play golf and play for the glory of God. Thanks for all the love and support. Jack Nicholas got on there and retweeted that and also replied and said, this is the kind of person we want in golf. And I was like, this is the kind of person we want in the world. See, Kate was taught a value, honesty. She grew her character. Her character said, and Kate said, is to be truthful. It's been engraved on her heart and in her life. Heart's on this side. Even if it meant disqualification. She said, I couldn't leave without saying something. And she is building her integrity, right? People have noticed how Kate lives. More than her golf score. See, nobody was retweeting Kate after she won the championship. Everybody was after she demonstrated her values and her character and integrity. All right, so all of that is background for the next part of Scripture. We don't know exactly how much time passed between chapters 37 in Genesis and chapter 39. But in 37, Joseph is 17 years old, and he seems arrogant. He's growing up with a dysfunctional family, and the values he's been taught likely are things like favoritism and arrogance and jealousy, like we've already said. But in in Genesis 37, he doesn't seem very admirable. He's not like the guy we all want to grow up to be, all right? He's just kind of... He's just kind of languishing in this dysfunctional family. He's mob attacked by his brothers, right? He's thrown into a cistern and he's sold as a slave. But somewhere between chapters 37 and 39, and we don't know how much time has gone, but somewhere between chapter 37 and 39, values and character and integrity begin to be built up into Joseph's life. And so it's up on the screen. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. Oh, do I remember those days well. 
It's tough. It's tough. So he's a very handsome and well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. And she doesn't, she doesn't mix words. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. Mom and dad, we're going to get a little PG-13 here. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you're his wife, in case you didn't know that. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. Verse 10, she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. Joseph value, Joseph's values are based on his faith in God. His character is trust and loyalty. It's written on his heart. He says, my master trusts me. What you are suggesting, he says, is wicked. He tells her it would be a great sin against God. He says, having a sexual relationship with someone who's not your spouse would be an offense to God. And so Joseph runs. He runs. He's gripped and he runs, right? And by the way, this guy can't keep his coat. This is the second coat in this story that he's lost. All right? Are you kidding me? Like, he's like one of my kids. He can't keep a coat. He runs out without his coat, but he left with his integrity intact. Paul tells us, he warns us in the New Testament, Ephesians, he's talking to the young church there, and he says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. See, Paul tells us what Joseph must have known, that sin is a slippery slope, not just sexual sin, all sin. I mean, how do brothers... How do brothers go from jealousy to murder? How do you get from jealousy to murder? One step at a time. One step at a time. Sin is a slippery slope. The message version says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, that it sets us on a downhill slide. Sin is harmful. All sin. That innocent sin at the water cooler, they're just joking. It is a slippery slide, and it all kills. And so Joseph knows this, and Joseph runs. Joseph didn't need the run, by the way. Think about it. Joseph doesn't run because of the situation. Well, yes, because of the situation, but Joseph could have allowed his integrity to slip here. See, he had a good job. It was turning into a career. He had power and resources at his disposal. He may have even thought, maybe this is the dream that God has for me. I mean, my career is moving up and to the right here. If we're reading this story for the very first time, this is one of the difficult things when you read these Old Testament stories or any story in the Bible, is that we know the ending. And so a lot of times we go, oh, hum, yeah, let's get to where it all turns up into the right. Well, it doesn't know. If you're reading this for the first time, 
Joseph, what are you doing? Maybe this is okay. Maybe this is God's plan. I mean, Potiphar trusts him with everything, and Potiphar seems to be elsewhere. We don't know where Potiphar is, but who would know? If we're reading this story for the first time, the dream's headed in a good direction. Joseph, don't blow it. But he would have sacrificed his integrity. Sin is a slippery slope. And if we sacrifice our integrity to accomplish any dream, what have we really gained? Joseph did the right thing in his circumstance. He ran. He did the right thing. He ran. Let's see the results. It's up on the screen. When she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon, all the men came running. And I wonder how many of them have been propositioned by her as well. Just side note. Uh, Soon, all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me. See, she has taken it another step here. But I screamed, and when he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. I've got evidence. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave you've brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me. But when I screamed, he ran outside leaving his cloak with me. Doing the right thing does not always ensure a positive response. See, you can do the right thing and lose a golf tournament. You can do the right thing and not get the promotion at work. You can do the right thing and your family may not speak to you. Doing the right thing means that our values and our character and our integrity will not be sacrificed for any dream. Doing the right thing means we will trust God in our circumstance, but doing the right thing does not assure a positive response. Verse 19, we see, Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held, and there he remained. I think we could do a whole message just on this verse. We don't have time for it. But who is Potiphar furious with? See, Potiphar had the right to have Joseph killed, but he didn't. He put him in prison. Is Potiphar furious with his wife because he knows this is trumped up charges? We don't know. I'll save that for another message because we don't have time. So the pathway to the fulfillment of the dream is not always the pathway we assume. Often it's filled with ups and downs and trials and challenges and errors. And Joseph, as he moved up the ranks in Potiphar's home, surely imagined that he was arriving and getting to the dream or that even he had arrived. And now he's in prison and he's falsely accused because doing the right thing does not always promise a positive response. And if the reader, again, was hearing this story for the first time, they would believe the dream is dead. That Joseph is now in prison. And even Joseph may believe the dream is dead. 
Joseph had no idea when this story began that it would involve a cistern and it would involve slavery and it would involve a 200 mile journey to Egypt and it would be sold again and falsely accused and now imprisoned. And so from Joseph's perspective and for any first time reader, the dream is dead. And so I wrote in the margin of my Bible in chapter 39, I wonder how many times when I thought the dream was dead, it wasn't. And I want to challenge you to not quit when you think the dream is dead. What if Joseph had stopped dreaming when he was in the pit? What if Joseph had stopped dreaming when he was sold as a slave by his brothers? What if Joseph had stopped dreaming when he was in prison? See, there's a theme that runs throughout the story of Joseph. It's up on the screen. The very next verse says this. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. The Lord was with Joseph in the prison. See, we know the end of the story, but what if Joseph had quit when he was sold into slavery? What if he had quit on God? What if he had quit on his values and his character and his integrity? What if he had slept with Potiphar's wife and gave up on the dream? What if, what if? See, we know the end of the story. We know all Joseph would have missed. We know how the dream is going to turn out. But your circumstance your circumstance is not a dead end to the dream. Your circumstance is not a dead end to the dream. Christine Kane said this, it's up on the screen. Sometimes when you're in a dark place, you think you've been buried, but actually you've been planted. See, we don't know the end of our stories. We don't know the end of our story. Our story is still being written. We don't know all the story that God is writing about us. We don't know all the story God is writing about Hope Church in this community. Don't quit in the middle of the story. How many times has the dream been lost because the dreamer quit pursuing the dream one step from realizing the dream? See, your circumstance is not a dead end to the dream. And so let me challenge you. Here's the question. Actually, I'm going to leave with several questions tonight, tonight, this morning. What's the next right thing I need to do to accomplish the dream? What's the next right thing I need to do to accomplish the dream? See, you may only be one step away. You may be several steps away, but the dream can still be realized. So maybe your dream is for your marriage. Maybe right now it's struggling, and it's not the dream marriage you want it to be. Maybe you've just fallen out of love. Things just are not the same. The pressures of life have built up around it. Something has slipped. And so what's your dream for your marriage? God wants to turn that dream into a vision and a reality. Don't quit on it. Maybe Maybe your dream is for your kids or for your family that there be healthy relationships because right now it's not relationally well off. Right now there's little connection to God when it comes to your family. And so maybe that's your dream. Don't quit. Maybe it's about your career or it's about college or it's about work and you're just wondering what could be. 
Maybe one job is ending and you're not sure when or where the next will start. Or maybe work has become a job and it's no longer a career. Or maybe it's about your health or about retirement or about your future in general. You may be one step from the dream becoming reality. Sometimes what looks like distress is destiny in disguise. And don't sacrifice your integrity for the dream. Do the next right thing. Our campus in Mount Laurel, you know, I I spend most of my weeks there, and so it's nice to see you folks when I get to come back here. Uh, We're still discovering all that God has for us. And we may be small in number, but what we're discovering is we're great in influence. Our, um, uh, uh, we've expanded our influence beyond Voorhees. Uh, we, we had a meeting two weeks ago, and I shared this with the Mount Laurel folks last week, is that uh, we met with the Chick-fil-A in Mount Laurel, and that's been, been this incredible partnership with us. The Chick-fil-A in Mount Laurel loves us, and we love them. And so we are discussing, uh, Chris Graves and I, and uh, uh, we're meeting to talk about how can we do a vacation Bible school in Mount Laurel? And, and we don't have a building, and so that's challenging, right? And so, you know, there's 200 kids coming to vacation Bible school here, and we're like, oh, we want to do that like Voorhees, you know? And so we're like, how can we do a vacation Bible school? What would be a great way to connect with some people? And so we decided, let's go to Chick-fil-A and ask them if we can do a vacation Bible school at Chick-fil-A. Sure, let's try that, right? And so we said, well, we got to come up with a better idea than that because that's not going to fly. And so we met with them and said, what if we did one night a week for several nights in the summer if we did like a family event where people could come in and they could eat at Chick-fil-A and we would do a family craft that would be values oriented and, and it would just be an encouraging thing for people. And they took off with the idea. They're like, this is awesome. We'll, we'll advertise it to all the folks that we see. And everybody loves Chick-fil-A, right? So they might not know about Hope in Mount Laurel, but man, they know about Chick-fil-A in Mount Laurel. And so every, every Thursday night or six Thursdays in July and August, we're going to meet at Chick-fil-A and we're doing a vacation Bible school there, right? Sort of, right? Yeah, isn't that cool? That is, that is, that is the dream turning into vision, turning into reality, right? And, it, and it's happening right before our eyes. And we don't want to quit before that happens. Then while we're there, I decided, you know, like I'm a gambler and I'm like going, let's just keep going, right? They said yes to that. I'm going to go till I get a no, right? So then I said, what do you guys do at Christmas time? (laughs) And I said, we do this thing. And this was totally open field running, all right? Uh, I said, we do this thing called the gingerbread houses and we do this tree lighting. We do this on our Voorhees campus and we get hundreds of people here and lots of families and they love building gingerbread houses and we have Santa show up. And uh, they went, oh, we would love to do something like that. And I went, so would we. And Chris is like, I'm like, yes, we do. We want to do that. It's going to be terrific, right? And so, oh, I'm way over time. All right. And so, uh, so it's just like this is neat thing. And so they said, yes. Now we found out that that Chick-fil-A has two stores. And they said, would you do it at both stores? And I'm like, we sure will, right? And so now we're doing gingerbread houses at two different Chick-fil-A's where people who do not know about hope from the Mount Laurel and area and surrounding are going to come and hear about hope, right? That is God taking a dream, turning into a vision and making it a reality. God has so much for us. One step away. Don't stop trusting God wherever you are. 
Do the next right thing. See, the brothers treated Joseph like dirt, and Potiphar treated him like property, and Potiphar's wife treated him like an object for her own pleasure, but God was building a dream in Joseph. And if we sacrifice our integrity to accomplish a dream, we've gained nothing, we've lost everything. And Joseph's story is a story of loyalty, loyalty to God and loyalty to his values and loyalty to the dream of God. And so what's the next right thing? So the band's gonna come up, they're gonna do a closing song. And as they do this song, uh, the lyrics to this song, you're gonna hear, you've probably heard this song before on the radio, but uh, I saw an interview. And in the interview, uh, uh, the author wrote, said this about the song. He said, the whole point of this song for me is the change that Jesus made in my life is so real and so life transforming that if Jesus were to go dark, if God went silent from this point on in my life, God would still be the greatest hope because of all that God has already done. And so basically, there's not a single circumstance, this guy goes on to say, there's not a single circumstance, I pray, that can derail me from what Christ is to me and who I am because of Christ. See, your circumstance is not a dead end to the dream. And Joseph, while in prison, I imagine, was wondering, God, what's next Why is this happening? If you look at his life, it was a constant up and down, up and down, up and down. And every down in scripture, it says that the Lord was with him. And so don't quit on your dream. Don't quit on your dream.